Power and Paradox by the Kinky Pet, Chapter 25. Notes. Trigger warning. This trigger warning is hidden behind a ROT13. If you want to see it, please go to the original chapter and decode it from there. Excerpts from Orientation and History, an overview. Of the scientific revolution brought empirical evidence of male submissives and female dominance, this empirical evidence did not bring the sweeping social change many groundbreaking 18th and 19th century researchers had hoped for. These changes would not begin to be realized until the dominant movement and silent revolution in the later half of the 20th century. This leaves over 150 years of profound social liminality for the newly scientifically validated exceptions to heteroorientational normativity, female dominance, and male submissives. In this section, I examine the unique challenges faced by male submissives in the early 20th century. As described in the previous chapter, female dominance were at a profound social and economic disadvantage prior to the dominant movement. This often made it difficult for them to provide for a submissive and establish a traditional household. Doms with switch inclinations, even those who favored the dominant end of the spectrum, often chose to identify as submissives and marry male dominance instead of struggling against societal expectations and very real economic hardship. For the history of S-slash-switch identity, see chapter 6. By 10 a.m., Tony had signed a bunch of paperwork, corrected nine errors in the latest phone specs from R&D, and read over four of Pepper's reports only to agree wholeheartedly with her projected course of action. As he worked through it all, Tony's eyes kept drifting over to the end of his table, where two-thirds of a BLT sat waiting for him to regain his appetite. Turned out a tea sandwich meant BLT, at least in this case. The morning press had contained no mention of Roger's knight in shining armor act at the gala, not even a hint. Coverage of the fundraiser had been extremely positive. The Avengers clearly hadn't lost their shine, and they were still riding their understandably high PR wave after saving New York City, and possibly the country and the world, from aliens. Apart from a few predictable remarks about Mr. Stark's controversial appointment, the coverage had been unambiguously positive, and Tony wasn't above basking a little in descriptions of his exquisite appearance and a politely censored list of his most famous achievements. No proper news outlet had even lowered itself to mentioning the 2005 fundraiser, which, considering he'd been attending a fundraiser, made it frankly low-hanging fruit. The blogosphere wasn't so polite, but that was no surprise and nothing new. All in all, things were looking good. Tony stretched and rolled his shoulders, feeling the pleasant pull in his muscles again. He was tempted to send Sam and Rebecca flowers, or a cactus. Now that he'd cleared all the pressing issues from his docket, he needed a new project. Hey Jarvis, give me the specs on S.H.I.E.L.D.'s latest body armor. Of course, sir. Tony had been wanting to upgrade his teammates' gear for a while. Ever since October 1st, surprise, surprise. Actual Kevlar was obviously too heavy and bulky to be practical for hand-to-hand -hand fighters like Widow and Cap, but S.H.I.E.L.D. substitute material sacrificed a lot of protection for its increased flexibility. Tony was pretty sure he could do better. Who's he kidding? Of course he can! As Tony studied the projected statistics, he grunted with disapproval. S.H.I.E.L.D. had only upped Kevlar's para-aramid ratio from 5 to 1 to 5.7 to 1. Pathetic. Who the hell do they have on R&D? Tony rolled his eyes and caught sight of the BLT at the end of his table. You're my friend. I don't have that many friends here. Tony turned away. Hey, Jay, throw the stats for gold titanium alloy up on the left. I wasn't always a big, strong dom. My pleasure, sir, Jarvis said. Tony took a deep breath and read over the familiar numbers once more. Not everything is about orientation for me any more than it is for you. Now, give me the Cuniff formula and analysis, would ya? Come on, Tony, focus. Jarvis didn't answer, just complied. Description, colon. V underscore 50 in brackets equals U to the star to the one-third F divided by left divided by fraction divided by A underscore D, A underscore P divided by right. And let's get images of Cap and Widow's uniforms on screen 10, okay? Post-battle. I want to see the damage. On 10, sir. Widow's uniform was in surprisingly good shape, but Cap's was a mess. 
The worst damage was a wide gash across his stomach, but there were sizable cuts across his right shoulder and left thigh as well. Tony glared. Rudy reported that Cap insisted the serum had it covered and never saw a doctor, but with gouges in the uniform like that, and the amount of brown cake to it that wasn't dirt? Jesus. Tony shook himself. Well, that shit ends here. Gonna make a uniform out of something other than fucking paper mache. Okay, take those pictures down. Just leave me the data sets. Calm down, stupid. They're both fine. Tony's eyes flickered from screen to screen, running mental calculations. If I hybridize the current aramid with scale mail gold titanium alloy, maybe... Tony mused to himself. His eyes strayed to the BLT. The tea sandwich. He dotted down a few equations. I won't apologize for wanting to look out for you. Tony took a deep breath and tried to lose himself in the creativity of invention and the clarity of stats and specs. Somehow it wasn't quite working. I never seemed to get things right with you. Likewise, Tony muttered. He shook his head as if that would clear his mind and squinted at the datasets floating luminously in the air. Eventually, Tony finished off the BLT so he'd stop thinking about Rogers. It didn't work. Fifty cups of coffee and forty-eight hours later, the bruises on Tony's wrists were fading away and his plans for a seven-to-one para-aramid body armor were shape up. Turns out Knight's thought chainmail is a pretty great invention for a reason. Give me the re-fortified tensile readings, Jay. Hmm. Okay. I'll need to adjust the calculations to include the SAPI plate, Tony muttered. Okay, Jay. Run those calculations for me and let's see what we've got. Knock, knock. A voice called from just outside the workshop. Tony pulled the hoodie sleeves down over his wrists as he turned. Bruce, Tony said. Long time no see. Bruce smiled as he strolled into the shop. I was wondering where you disappeared after the gala. Should have figured. Tony shrugged. You know me. Yeah, may I? He said, gesturing to the newly arrived workshop coffee maker. Knock yourself out. I'll try not to, thanks, Bruce said with a wry smile. He waved at the schematics. So what's all that? Looks like you've been testing tensile strengths. You're pretty close. It's a new para-aramid I'm working on. Tony took a sip of coffee and kicked his spare wheelie stool. It rolled its way over to Bruce, who looked amused. Here, I'll walk you through it. Which was fine, really, since once you have Tony Stark, why have anybody else? But he was a scientist with a creative mind. They bounced ideas around, and in not too long, Tony had, a uh, finessed his way towards military research on the mantis shrimp cell composition, which naturally turned into watching YouTube clips of mantis shrimps and the mimic octopus, then surfing the best animal videos on the internet. Okay, maybe coffee isn't the same as sleep. That was fun. Bruce said with a smile. He rolled his shoulders and gave a luxurious stretch as he stood up. Maybe the mantis shrimp will inspire another new element or something. But now it's six, and I should go see if Steve needs a hand with dinner. He's roasting a chicken, and I thought we might watch All About Eve after. Will you come up? Tony's eyes flickered back to the glowing screens. He was finally on a roll with his body armor. You two break notwithstanding. No, don't think so. I'm really in the zone, you know. Tony bit his lip. But, uh, tell Cap thanks, would you? Bruce nodded, but Tony added. No, seriously, make sure you do. Big guy gets sensitive about the whole food and cooking and eating thing. Bruce laughed. I won't forget, Tony. Okay, cool. See you later, Tony. Good luck with the armor. Sir, Captain Rogers asks who'd like him to bring a plate of dinner to the workshop. Tony hesitated. Uh, he needn't bother. Captain Rogers says it's no bother at all, but that he does not wish to intrude. Yeah, sure, all right, Tony added. But no rush. Whenever. The captain is on his way. Of course he is. Tony smiled, the double check that all his marks were covered. Mr. Stark. Rogers always greeted him from the doorway to the shop, and he always called him Mr. Stark. No nicknames, no plain old Stark like Fury did. He never dropped the full Mr. Tony had been half wanting for him to give up on formality, invitation or no, but he didn't. And that, that felt curiously like respect. May I come in? 
and Rogers always explicitly asked permission and waited for an answer before entering. Even before the, I think I kind of sexually harassed you and I'm really, really sorry thing. You bet, Cap, come on in. Captain America was wearing a gray and white checkered shirt with a pair of glorious jeans Tony suspected Katie Winters had picked out for him. Gorgeous. And he was carrying an actual tray with a huge glass of water, an unopened beer, and a plate heaped high with chicken, roasted potatoes, and veggies. Cap set it carefully at the far end of Tony's workbench. Smells fantastic, Tony said with undisguised enthusiasm. Thanks. My pleasure, Cap said with a little smile. Tony cracked the beer first. Vaguely surprised Rogers had brought him one, and raised it with a little salute. Tony looked at the steaming plate and said, a little bemused, You really are all about feeding people, aren't you, Cap? What's with that, anyway? Just seems like a nice thing to do, Rogers said with a shrug. He took a step back. Something about that step, the little pause, the slope of his shoulders, and the way Rogers blinked all made Tony think there was more to it than that. It only made Tony more curious. Tony was still formulating his follow-up question when Cap added a little sheepishly. Maybe it's just an old habit. There wasn't that much I could do to help my mother as a kid, or when I got older. Taking care of the cooking was often all I could manage, so maybe this is just a bit of the same. And was it Tony's imagination, or could he hear hints of, I still feel useless here in the 21st century, in that admission? Rogers nudged the tray closer with a bit of a smile as he confessed a little wistfully. Not that we could have a whole chicken, except maybe on Christmas. Rogers shook his head, as if clearing the melancholy away. Besides, he said with another shrug, I liked Homek. Home Eck, Tony repeated incredulously. You took Home Eck. What's wrong with taking Home Eck? Rogers asked a trifle defiantly, chin up and Brooklyn Lilth coming out with a vengeance. Nothing, Tony said, hands held up in surrender. Just, I thought only subs took Home Eck in the 30s. Oh, right, Rogers said a little abashed. They did, but I presented real late, so when September came around and I still hadn't shown, they guessed based on my build. He hesitated. I really liked the cooking lessons, though. My classmates there were real sweethearts, and cooking seemed like a useful skill for me, so I positioned to stay until the end of the year. Cap made a grimace. I wasn't exactly built for heavy labor back before. Tony blinked. Not that he didn't know Cap had been small. It was part of the legend. He just never supposed. Well, Roger said, straightening, I shall let you get back to work and go rejoin the others. I bet Bruce is making them wait for me. Oh, right, sure. Tony blinked again, and shook his head as if to clear it. Well, thanks again for dinner, and the delivery service. Rogers just smiled and took his leave. Huh. Tony shook his head and tried to focus. He could reread the paraaramid stats while he ate, then play with some cellular diagrams. Maybe he could have a prototype within the week. Tony took an absent-minded bite of chicken, then moaned. It was delicious. In early 20th century America, male submissives shared much of the adversity of their female counterparts. However, as orientationally liminal figures, they faced additional challenges and paradoxes like the female dominant. Male submissives, like females, faced severe discrimination and abuse in the workplace. However, their domestic options were limited by the continued discrimination against female dominance. Despite widespread acceptance of bisexual experimentation, long-term homosexual couples were rare, in part due to continuing stigmas against adoption and surrogacy. Male submissives were eroticized object of dominance desire, but were unable to bear children. Therefore, they were often courted as lovers, not spouses. In the 19th century particularly, they were widely stereotyped as sexually voraciously and promiscuous, but neither domestic nor nurturing. In these strange circumstances, some male submissives became sex workers. There were no explicit legal prohibitions in place at the time, and, unlike female sex workers, male submissives were in no danger of unwanted pregnancy. 
However, these socio-legal conditions also enabled some unscrupulous employers to negotiate barely legal employment contracts that required their submissive employees to provide sexual favors as a condition of employment as a secretary, receptionist, sales clerk, etc. Although these contracts were dubiously legal by any standard and explicitly illegal if coerced in any way, under Title III of the Fair Labor Act of 1921, uninformed submissives often fell prey to such tactics, and even those informed of their rights often found themselves with few alternatives. By midnight, Tony was exhausted and away coffee and naps on a shop cot. Couldn't cure. Well, unless they had to, but new body armor wasn't that urgent right now. Time to get a nightcap, then call it a night. And maybe see if there was any more of that amazing chicken in the fridge. The TV was on in the common room. Roger sat alone in the middle of Tony's sumptuous leather couch, frowning with concentration. Or perhaps disapproval. A small spiral notebook in his left hand, pencil in his right. Hey, Cap, Tony said, a little away from the refrigerator. Oh, hello, Mr. Stark. Roger said a little distractedly. Yep, he never dropped the mister. Cap jotted something in his notebook. Apparently, it was acclamation time. Roger confessed to Clint once, who'd repeated it to Tony, but he tried to watch a little TV every day to try and adjust to the future, but he found most of it so awful he had to change every few minutes. Tony certainly knew the feeling. Tony found the chicken well demolished, but he still managed to pick off a little more meat. He nibbled on it cold, standing up in the kitchen. Oh, fuck, that was good. By the time he was done, the carcass was pretty thoroughly stripped, and Tony considered throwing it out for a moment. Knowing Roger's sense of economy, though, he was probably saving it. To make stock with it. Or cook with a marrow. Or something. Did people do that? Mmm. The sub on TV made ecstatic chocolate noise, and the camera zoomed in on her brightly painted mouth. Roger's changed the channel. Tony rinsed off his fingers, fixed himself a scotch, and wandered over the couch. A sultry sort of ambient music with a bit of Latin backbeat filled the room. A dom in a crisp black suit parked his red sports car and went into a decadent white marble bank. All the style and luxury you need, the narrator intoned. The dom emerged to find a beautiful sub posed seductively across the hood, wearing a minuscule red satin dress that seemed to merge her into the image of the car, to get you wherever you want to go. Rogers let out a disgusted noise. Aw, oh, come on, what the heck was that? A car commercial? Tony suggested. Roger shook his head with another disgusted noise and waved his hand angrily at the TV. All I know about that car is that it comes in red. What kind of engine does it have? How much horsepower? Features? Price? Rogers let out an exasperated sigh and changed the channel. Advertisements used to be informative, Rogers grumbled. Sure, but full of unsupported lies, Tony said with a shrug. Some things don't change. Tony settled on the edge of the couch. Besides, that ad told you all you need to know. Buy this car and you'll attract sexy subs. Roger scowled and changed the channel again. A chipper news anchor announced the latest puff piece. Up next, what your safe word says about you. How to pick the perfect code for you and your partner. Now it was Tony's turn to let out a disgusted snort. Rogers gave him an inquisitive look and muted another car commercial. That sort of thing is bullshit. Tony rolled his eyes. What is? Reading things into people's safe word. It's like those fake science studies of what your sleeping position means to your relationship, or how your favorite foods predict romantic compatibility, or bullshit like that. Tony shook his head. My safe word is safe word. Roger seemed to hesitate a moment, then asked, Isn't that sort of... impersonal? You're real cute, Cap, Tony said with a smirk. Just because... I'm playing with no weight. Just because people are playing together doesn't mean it's not impersonal. Tony took a sip of scotch. With all that aside, safe word holds up best in court. Rogers looked pained. I hadn't thought about that, he admitted quietly. Yeah. Tony took another sip of scotch, deliberating for a moment before he added, and I ought to know, first-hand experience and all that. Tony shrugged. 
You can read about it, you know, on Wikipedia and whatnot. Hell, there are dissertations written about the trial transcripts alone. Tony felt a certain fierce pride at the thought. How many people were invited to give talks at technical conferences the world over and were sought after by orientation and gender studies departments? He'd been a regular Oscar Wilde on the stand, giving that orientationist fuck of a defense lawyer the witty runaround, and he'd only been threatened with contempt of court five times. I know. Tony'd zoned out for a moment there, but Rogers had his full attention now. What? California versus Henson, Rogers said seriously. It's a landmark case. I read about it. And the Stark safe. Trademark. When I was... Rogers hesitated. Catching up. Tony blinked, feeling a little silly. Cap had been awake for months now, reading up on everything he'd missed. Of course he'd read about it. Why had Tony assumed that he wouldn't know? Cap set aside his notepad and turned off the TV abruptly. They sat in silence. Tony finished his scotch. Tony honestly didn't think about Jason Hansen very often these days. That handsome, arrogant sack of shit. For a trial that dragged on for weeks, the actual events had taken mere moments. The intricate rope bondage had been secure and felt great. But then he'd hit Tony. Hit him with a force far beyond the light slapping Tony had okayed in their negotiations on the way home from the bar. Tony'd yellowed. Hansen hadn't stopped. He'd started hitting Tony as hard as he could. Tony'd safe-worded and struggled to get free. Hansen hadn't stopped. Tony safe-worded again. Jarvis had called security, and the fucker had been restrained within minutes, looking ridiculous in handcuffs with his dick hanging out of his trousers. Yeah, and thank God. No, thank Jarvis. Tower security had arrived before Hans had moved from the non-consensual hitting to non-consensual other things. The press had been vicious, but the evidence was so ironclad no amount of orientationist bias or victim-blaming could save Hansen. Three years in jail and a lifetime restraining order for that asshole. It was good to be a billionaire genius with in-home security and a loyal, omniscient AI as your fairy godmother. It had only taken a couple of months to get the first-generation Stark safe on the market. A miniaturized, limited-function Jarvis, smart enough to recognize a safe word and call 911 within 90 seconds once triggered, unless given a customized deactivation code. Stark domestic stock soared, and Tony made sure that the Maria Stark Foundation had a special endowment to provide them free to low-income submissives. According to a national survey, non-con and contract abuse dropped by 33% the year the Stark safe went on the market. In the dank cold of that miserable cave, it had been a comfort to know not all of his legacy would be drenched in blood. Conviction for abuse was almost unheard of when I was growing up. Tony jolted at the sound of Roger's voice. He'd been so lost in thought he'd almost forgotten the captain was there. Rogers continued quietly, staring at the blank TV screen. Not that it didn't happen. Of course it did. But people didn't say, and it was almost impossible to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt. There was no Stark safe to give people privacy and safety. Dom's got away with it all the time. Rogers swallowed. And if a sub did... Rogers took a deep breath. New York versus Jacobs. I was twelve. Tony blinked. Well, shit. He hadn't thought of that. It had been billed as the trial of the century. Despite days of testimony about her dom's systematic abuse, they'd thrown out the self-defense plea and charged her with premeditated first-degree murder. Three people were killed at protests the day Mary Jacobs was hanged. Later, liberationists adopted her as a martyr and a rallying cry. Rogers looked up at Tony, expression sad. I was only twelve. I wouldn't present for two more years, and like I said, I was so small, everyone assumed. I mean, I did too. Rogers fell silent for a moment, then said softly, My mother prayed for Mary Jacobs. She prayed for me too. Rogers set the remote down very carefully on the coffee table and stood. Tony's heart was pounding and his mouth was dry. Rogers paused for a moment as he passed. Tony Stark was a hero long before Iron Man. Tony felt like the air had been knocked out of his lungs. 
He couldn't find the breath to reply as Rogers bade him be quiet. Good night, Mr. Stark, and slid away. Notes. So I really hope you liked that. Steve's speech about Mary Jacobs was one of the foundational snippets I dotted down over a year ago when I was first thinking about this AU and conceiving of his backstory. Needless to say, I've been eager to share it with you, and I promise more revelations and good stuff to come. Yes, even the kinky sex. Eventually. Also, the story was originally going to be short. All done in 25 chapters. Ha ha ha. So I'm guessing it will now be more like 50-something. You've been warned. And thank you for being such wonderful readers. Your supportive words, shared responses, and thoughtful comments mean the world to me. This story has been a labor of love and healing for me, and has brought me true joy to share it with you. Your kindness keeps me going. Ever onward. Thanks for reading. And now back to the grindstone on real-life work. Oof. P.S. Yeah, yeah, I know. The scientific revolution's start date is contested, but it was not in the 18th century in real life. But hey, this is Nayu, so I start the scientific revolution when I wants to. Smiley face. Update. June 24th. I've been trying to post every 10 days or so, but it looks like chapter 26 is going to be a bit behind schedule. Life has been pretty busy, mostly my job, and I need to make sure that I draft or outline at least four or five chapters ahead before posting 26 so I don't accidentally write myself into a corner. Sorry for the delay. Never fear. I'm not on the verge of hiatus or anything. See you soon! This is Zanship, and fuck this chapter always gets me to crying. Ugh. Still have tears. It's fine. I think Tony just made that assumption where he thought Cap was always a dom. And Cap really gets being submissive and being male. And I think that's always forgotten, that he actually has context for what it's like to be the victim, to be someone who was picked on, to be someone who was thought as less. I don't know. I love this chapter, even though it makes me cry.